Hi, this is Gary Meese, back again with episode 10 of The Case Against. Today we're going to delve into some of the personal history of Damien Eccles, um, quoting mostly or almost exclusively from materials uh, originating from the defense uh, side of the case, uh, documents that he uh, actively solicited be made and that were made uh, public for various reasons. Uh, and the argument sometimes is, as well, you know, this doesn't prove that whatever was here in, in these documents and, and subsequent uh, things we're going to look at in regards to uh, his uh, his uh, being placed in or placing himself in various mental institutions. All that is, is sometimes argued as that's not that relevant to the case. Uh, it doesn't prove he killed anybody and we're Certainly, there's it's as it's just as factual evidence of him murdering uh, Michael Moore, Stevie Branch, Christopher Byers on May fifth, nineteen ninety three, in West Memphis, Arkansas. That they, that that argument is correct on the face of it. However, if we're going to understand what initially seems like a unfathomable murder if we're going to fathom the unfathomable and if we if we're going to be able to imagine the unimaginable as much as we possibly can and i i find it hard to get my head as much time as i've spent on these materials i have a hard time getting around the basic facts of what was of what uh Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miskelly Jr. did to those three boys is it's so far beyond what I would consider to be you know human behavior in the in the usual sense of the term normal human behavior it's so far beyond the norm it's so far beyond what most of us can understand what I can understand is something that somebody could actually do that it, it's a challenge for me but I so obviously somebody killed those boys and did it in, in a horrific fashion and all the evidence suggests that uh, Jason Baldwin and Damien Eccles and Jesse Miskelly were very good suspects and uh, were in fact the killers but to really understand it, we have to understand the Eccles mindset as much as we can. And since he's been fairly public in recent years about his, particularly his uh, utter obsession with uh, the occult, uh, it's, I think it's important to understand where this is, how this was generated in his, this kind of obsession and this need to control was generated uh, based back in his childhood. And we're playing a little bit of, you know, dime store psychologist here, but, you know, 
uh, I, I think we'll, as, as we read on with this, we'll see that this is a kid who's, as a child, he's a rather pathetic case of someone whose emotions and thoughts were well out of his control. And he found within a certain belief system a means of seeming control. Though you could argue that uh, the insanity is was controlling them him then and is still controlling him now. And I'm not sure there's anything there but insanity. I'm not I'm not sure there's a core of I don't I don't see any evidence that there's a core of basic humanity within Damien Eccles. I see no evidence of that. Uh, since he's termed himself a, a sociopath, I have no legal reason to say that I, I absolutely, I, that other than I absolutely agree with Damien's own self-assessment that he's a sociopath, uh, among other things. Well, I think probably a uh, pathological narcissist probably explains more what he's about than anything else. But he certainly had he certainly has some other things going on here. And we're going to get into that. This is from my book, Blood on Black. It's the first volume in a two-volume set. The other book is uh, Where the Monsters Go. Um, and I condensed both those books down into a single book called The Case Against the West Memphis Three Killers. There's no, ambigu <laughs> no ambiguity about where I stand on this. I think that the three men who were convicted of the crimes and who later pled guilty to the crimes are indeed guilty of the crimes. I don't have any problems at all uh, referring to them as killers and are convicted killers. Uh, they've said as much themselves. I don't, it's not something I have to, have to come up with or imagine. What uh, the, their supporters have to come up with or imagine are, are reasons why they're not that. And, and the, the, the things they come up with are mostly pretty ridiculous. You could argue about the thinness of, the, of some aspects of the case, and I, some of it is admit, admittedly thin. Some aspects of the case. Uh, if you look at the physical evidence, it's thin indeed for really, as we have gone over before and we'll go over again, but it's very thin indeed, partially because of the nature of the crime. Boys were placed in, in water, the, the victims, little boys were placed in, in a, a muddy, dirty ditch in a woods in West Memphis, Arkansas where they stayed for 18 hours and there just wasn't that much retrievable material. There weren't finger, there weren't, for the most part, there weren't fingerprints. You know, there was an odd fingerprint or two. There was an odd footprint or two. Uh, and considering that the area had been tromped over, not only by searchers, but just simply other people casually going through there at different times, it's hard to determine exactly what the sources of those, uh, uh, bits of physical potential physical evidence are and certainly not enough to weigh for or against uh, Damien Eccles uh, very similar to similarly to the uh, various hairs that were found uh, and uh, one of which just you know there's some a mitochondrial DNA that might or might not match one of the stepfathers. 
probably did come from him, but it's if it did, it's it's a secondary transfer, and way too much has been made of that. Um, I mean, there's been a whole and a couple of documentaries that based almost everything they had on uh, against this alternative suspect on on a single hair. The fact that they don't care for his demeanor and some very spurious witnesses, as I think we've already gotten into, but we can certainly get into it again with ridiculous crap like the Hobbes family secret or the four perp theory that was uh, originated from two convicted rapists in the uh, Arkansas prison system, both serving long-term long-term sentences for sexual assaults, but also had like numerous other felonies and, and, uh, and prison, prison uh, administrative charges against them. So, you know, consider the sources on these. But we're going to talk today using some very good sources, which is Eccles himself, stepfather, a mental health professional he talked to after he'd been in prison for quite a while and had time to come up with his own story. And I, I want to say that anytime Eccles talks about himself, and this is going to be, a lot of this is based on uh, self-reporting from Eccles. Eccles, uh, it's suspect. The guy's a liar and he, he makes up, uh, he makes up things. has been proved over and over again. And um, and we're all prone to create our own legends of legends of ourselves anyway. You know, we we craft our our life experiences into some form of coherent narrative. Most of us do. I certainly do, and I suspect most of you do too. And and with with Eccles, uh, he's he's got his own story that he's going to stick to. And uh, I firmly believe that he firmly believes in a lot of what he says because he's lied to himself, lied to himself and lied to others so often that uh, he believes it. But, you know, he doesn't seem to feel a lot of guilt about, as you would expect, he doesn't seem to feel a lot of guilt, shame or about not telling the truth. Most of us don't like to lie, but Eccles and Baldwin just don't seem to have a problem with that. Draw your, <laughs> as far as Baldwin's concerned, we don't have psychological tests on him. So draw your own conclusions from the fact that the guy never seems to show any remorse, any self-doubt. He, he spins a fantastic legend about his exploits in prison. He has no, no complications about... Uh, ripping off his supporters on Kickstarter for the tune of $30,000 for a book that he hasn't produced yet, and it's been, what, five years? Draw your own conclusions on that. Or the fact that the guy now positions himself as a professional victim uh, in Texas, but it, maybe he's doing some real work there on the ba- on the behalf of uh, uh, falsely accused or suppo- supposedly wrongly imprisoned or wrongly convicted prisoners. Uh, 
you know, maybe there's some of that going on, but uh, there's a lot of evidence. There's not a lot of evidence to really back that, back up that claim. He does go on um, various venues and promote himself, and he doesn't mind raising funds. Uh, be interested to see what the accountability is for those funds and where the funds go and how much of that goes to his own salary, etc., etc. Yeah, you know, it'd be nice if there was in these many interviews that Baldwin does is, is if uh, doesn't do as many as Eccles because nobody really cares about talking to him that much. But uh, he does do quite a few. And if one, just once an interviewer actually asked either one of these guys anything like really hard questions about things like, where did all the money go? How did it get spent? Do you have any accountability for that? How did Lori support herself for all those years in Arkansas? We know she worked some of the time, but she seemed to have spent, she seemed to have become a full-time, uh, be employed full-time toward working towards uh, Damien's release for a number of years. And uh, with some very expensive phone habits, et cetera, et cetera. Who paid for all that? I'm not suggesting anything illegal, but you know, there might be some accountability in all this. There might be, but you'll never get that from these guys. Not willingly, anyway. Anyway, the, the, the chapter title, and I hope I get through the whole chapter. Uh, if it turns out this is running too long, I'll, I, I may break this up, and, and particularly if I do a lot of asides like this, I may break it up and, and do more than one week on this. And there's some other materials I may add on to this in the next week, uh, next week or the week after, uh, that are further testaments to various family members and people who knew him, uh, and sympathetic. I will say they're sympathetic descriptions of Eccles as a child and young adolescent. Uh, part of what we're trying to do is generate some understanding, and you know, you may feel some sympathy for the for him as a kid. I do. Uh, obviously, you wish things had turned out better than it than they did for this boy. Uh, but at this point, he he's long since accountable for his actions as an adult. Anyway, the ti the title is. Uh, an alien from another world, not like any human on earth. Quoting Damien Eccles, I think at the time I probably suffered from what most teenagers suffer from, you know, just teenage angst, maybe depression, maybe sometimes even severe depression. Damien Eccles explained to CNN's Larry King in 2007 about his adolescence making it sound as if he was a typical moody teenager. Eccles painted a self-portrait of a fairly ordinary kid just a little bit out of the norm. Quote, Things weren't exactly the same, especially in the South, as they are now. I believe that I probably stood out in the small town where we were living just because of the music I listened to, the clothes that I wore, things of that nature. They considered me an oddity, so I drew attention. 
For example, one of the things they used against us at trial was the fact that I listened to Metallica. You know, back then, 15 years ago, that was something that was considered strange. Now you hear it played on classic rock stations. It's no big deal at all. Unquote. The West Memphis police had more promising leads than who was listening to Metallica, which would have been a rich field for suspects. By 1993, Metallica was one of the top rock acts internationally, playing 77 shows worldwide on its Nowhere Else to Roam tour, including dates in such southern towns as Johnson City, Tennessee, Lexington, Kentucky, and Greenville, South Carolina. Five years earlier, Metallica had been one of the headliners for the Monsters of Rock tour at Liberty Bowl Memorial Stadium, just across the river from West Memphis. Two years before that, Metallica had opened for Ozzy Osbourne at the Mid-South Coliseum at the Memphis Fairgrounds. Then as now, being a Metallica fan was no big deal and not something that would single anyone out as a murder suspect. Eccles was known around Marion and West Memphis for his carefully cultivated persona as a sneering specter in black, stalking along the side of the road, reveling in his bad reputation as a practitioner of the dark arts. You know, and here's a teenager who was in the stifling humidity and heat of the Arkansas summer as anybody who's been down that way during that time of the year, anybody who's been down that way that time of year can testify to its intensity. And it's not just for a few months out of the year. It's for a fairly large chunk of the year. It's really quite hot and really quite humid. And here is this one kid who's walking along the side of the road wearing a black trench coat no matter what the weather is. That's not somebody who's just striking a casual uh, style, personal style. It's somebody who's making a statement, and Eccles was making a statement by doing all this. The idea that they had any, anybody really had any idea what music he listened to is absurd. The idea that he drew attention to himself, that he was considered strange, was is absolutely true. And guess who created that image? Guess who worked very hard at it? Damien Eccles. He still does. He still strives to draw as much attention as possible through extreme behavior. Nothing's changed, and nothing is going to change. He'll continue this, continue on his present path until he ends up either back in prison or, you know, in the grave some, at some point in who knows when. Back to the text. What troubled authorities was not an immature poser with gothic pretensions, but the deeply troubled youth behind the cliched facade. In 2001, Dr. George W. Woods, a Berkeley, California psychiatrist, attempted to clarify what was wrong with Damien Eccles in a lengthy statement with an encompassing survey of Eccles' mental troubles and background, based greatly on suspect self-reporting. 
Dr. Wood's evaluation was requested by the Eccles defense to determine if his mental illness affected his competency to stand trial. The defense, attempting to appeal the conviction, contended that the antidepressants Eccles was taking in 1992-1993 heightened his manic episodes, creating a psychotic euphoria, quotes around psychotic euphoria, that included hallucinations and the delusion that, quote, deities, unquote, were transforming him into a, quote, superior, superior entity, unquote. The problems and limitations were long-standing, Dr. Woods explained, quoting from his report here. And I, I do quote him extensively here for a number of reasons. For one thing, it's a, uh, it's a, a, it is a quite comprehensive survey of the problems that Eccles experienced in terms of mental health and, and social social adjustment over uh, his time really up until the time of the interview with some background into family and so forth. Uh, and it comes from the defense. Uh, we could hardly, it could, if, if there's any prejudice in this, this document, it's a prejudice toward the defense. Anyway, to the, to the report, quote, Mr. Eccles' mother, Pamela, was adopted under mysterious circumstances and reared as the only child of her adoptive mother, who was trained as a practical nurse, and her adoptive father, who was an illiterate blue-collar worker. Cut away briefly. Uh, the, sto the family story, and I don't know how, I doubt if this is documentable, other than as a family history that may or may not be true, but the story is is that uh, the so-called adoptive father was actually her real father who'd had some sort of affair with an Indian, a Native American, an Indian woman, uh, and that Pam was the product of this union, and for some reason, uh, they'd adopt, they well, for the I guess because the father wanted to be the you can the best argument the nicest spin you can put on it the father wanted to be her father because he was her father he and his his wife adopted the child anyway that's the spin on it uh, whether that's actually true or not I don't know and I'm not sure anybody does at this point back to the back to the Dr. Wood's statement. When Mr. Eccles' mother began junior high school, she developed bizarre behavior that intensified as she grew older. She stopped attending high school because, in her words, it made her, quote, crazy, unquote. She was unable to cope with the stress of school, stopped leaving her home entirely, and received psychiatric treatment. Her adoptive mother was forced to quit work in order to stay home and care for her. Mr. Eccles' mother, Pamela, married Mr. Eccles' father, Joe Hutchinson, when she was only 15. Mr. Eccles' mother became pregnant with Mr. Eccles during the first year of her marriage. Due to her age and mental condition, the pregnancy was high risk and marked by numerous complications. 
According to her, the pregnancy, quote, almost killed me, unquote. She remained so nauseated and ill that she lost 50 pounds over the course of nine months. Her diet was very poor. She was not well nourished. Her long, high-risk labor necessitated a cesarean section from which she recuperated slowly. Not surprisingly, Mr. Eccles had many problems as an infant and young child. He was, quote, fretful and nervous and cried all of the time, unquote. His mother could not soothe him, and he slept fitfully for only three or four hours a night. At a very young age, he began to demonstrate troubling behaviors. He repetitively, I don't know why I would have trouble with repetitively, but I just, he repetitively banged his head against the wall and floor until he was three. Following Mr. Eccles' birth, his mother suffered a miscarriage and soon after became pregnant with his younger sister. Mr. Eccles' mother was not able to care for her two smallest children, so she sent Mr. Eccles to live with his maternal grandmother. Although Mr. Eccles returned to live with his mother and father, his mother was very dependent on her mother for assistance in caring for Mr. Eccles and later his sister. Pamela Eccles was never able to live on her own or care for her children without a great deal of support. She remained dependent on others for guidance and assistance with child rearing. I'm continuing on with Dr. Wood's report. Like Mr. Eccles' mother, his father, Joe Hutchinson, also appears to have suffered from mental instability. Joe Hutchinson is uniformly described as immature, self-absorbed, cruel, and capricious. He chronically neglected and abused his family. He berated his wife and son, set unrealistic expectations, called them degrading names, destroyed their most cherished possessions, terrorized them by threatening to break their bones and hurt them in other ways, and isolated them from community and family support by moving frequently, sometimes impulsively leaving a residence only days or weeks after moving in. On one occasion, he forced his wife to leave her hospital bed to move with him to another city. He found sadistic pleasure in donning horrifying rubber masks of hideous monsters and appearing at his son's bedroom window where he terrified Mr. Eccles by making gruesome noises. In addition, Mr. Hutchinson kept his family anxious with his fixation on the notion that others were trying to hurt him. For example, he was convinced, quote, people were trying to run him down, unquote, and constantly harangued his wife and son about the individuals who were trying to kill him. Neither mother nor child was equipped to deal with Joe Hutchinson's increasingly disturbed behavior. Fearing for her life and those of her children, Pamela Eccles finally found the courage to divorce Joe Hutchinson in 1986, unquote. End of quote from Dr. Woods. We'll get back to it in a minute. Uh, Damien was the product of two extremely unstable parents. Damien's troubling and often bizarre behavior from an early age worried family members. None of this suggested that the result would be a teenager whose only complaint would be your average case of the summertime blues. Dr. Woods, in other words, he was far from being a typical teenager. But, you know, Larry King, (laughs) 
who's a bit of a joke in a lot of ways. I mean, the man talked, he did a lot of work, and he stayed on radio and television for a long time, and he certainly had his talents. But as far as a insightful, pithy interviewer, he was not. Anyway, Dr. Woods continued. Mr. Eccles first recalls being overwhelmed by distressing and terrifying emotions in the second grade when he was positive there was going to be a nuclear war. Now we're talking about Damien now. He believed he, that he believed he, quote, had to get back to where something told him he came from before the war started, unquote. As he grew older, his, this obsession evolved into a driving force that consumed him and, quote, took up every bit of brain space and brain power, unquote. And, you know, among his talents, Damien does have a knack for hyperbole, and he's certainly exhibiting it here. Because all this, all this is from Eccles. Anyway, back to Dr. Woods. He became convinced that he was, quote, an alien from another world, not like any human on Earth. Problems at home continued, Dr. Woods noted, back to his report. Mr. Eccles' mental deterioration spiraled against the background of his unpredictable and troubled home life. His mother's confusion and dependence continued. Within days of divorcing Joe Hutchinson, she married Andy Jack Eccles, an illiterate laborer who worked intermittently as a roofer. The family was extremely poor. They found a shack set in the middle of crop fields that were doused with pesticides at regular intervals. Despite the extremely unhealthy conditions, the Eccles remained in the shack for five years. Damien's adoptive, that's from Dr. Woods, end of quotes for a bit. Uh, Damien's adoptive father, the since-deceased Jack Eccles, gave his impressions of the young Damien in a, a statement to the courts on September 4th, 2000. Quote, I married, Joe, I married Pam Hutchison in 1986, shortly after she split up from her husband, Joe. I had known her from the city through friends that we both had. I adopted both of her children, Michelle and Damien. When I adopted Damien, his name was Michael, and he had to change his last name to Eccles, and while he was doing that, he changed his first name to Damien. Damien was reading about a preacher named Damien, who he liked, and that is how he got his name. As an aside, uh, it's often suggested that Damien was inspired by the Antichrist figure in the Omen uh, and his name choice. It's possible. It's almost certain that he was at least influenced by that. We do know that he had a copy of The Exorcist in his home, which is wasn't is a huge bestseller, not something that would be a huge surprise to find in anybody's home. But uh, in that book, the the primary protagonist priest is is Father Damien, who took his name from uh, this leper priest that Damien continually cites. Uh, Father Damien in Hawaii that Damien continually, continually cites as his inspiration for his name. 
Uh, you know, I have no way of proving this, uh, but I strongly, strongly suspect that uh, Eccles was inspired to take uh, the name of Father Damien with all its rep all the layers of meaning that go along with that uh, via a reading of The Exorcist. With no doubt followed by a viewing of the movie since the family loved horror movies, no doubt followed at some point by watching The Omen and saying, oh, wow, here's another cool name, I, another inspiration for this cool name that I can have. Anyway, get back to a statement of Jack Eccles. When we first got married, I lived in some apartments in Marion. Pamela and her children moved in with me, and we stayed there for a few months. We finally moved into a house that needed a lot of work that was in the middle of a wheat field. Some folks might call it a shack, but it gave us a roof over our heads and a place to go home to. It was only $35 a month, and we needed some place that did not cost very much. I fixed the house up as best I could. We had a toilet in the bathroom and a sink in the kitchen, but they weren't hooked up right, so we could not use them at first. I fixed up a pump that was supposed to pump in water, but it could only handle a little bit of water at a time. We learned to use as little water as possible. Since water was a problem, we ate off paper plates so we did not have to do dishes. During part of the year, the water would quit running and we had to bring it in from outside. Most of the time, we went to Pamela's mama's house and my children's houses and filled up gallon jugs. Uh, Jack, By the way, Jack Eccles was 20 years or so older than Pamela Eccles and had grown children. So when he talks about going to his children's houses, we're talking about young adults, for the most part anyway. We tried to fill up enough at one time so that we only had to go every other day or so. We had to haul in wood to heat the place and it got plenty cold in that part of Arkansas. I got paid okay when I was working, but if there was ever a storm or other bad weather, then I did not work and we did not get a paycheck for that week. I was the only one working in the family, so it was real hard when I missed out on work." Unquote. Uh, and in his, echo, uh, his writings, uh, Damien's described this portion of his childhood with great bitterness. Just read uh, Life After Death, and he goes on about all the horrible, his horrible, horrible childhood. Anyway, and we have no doubt he experienced it as such. In fact, we have no doubt that he probably experiences life as a, an ongoing horror uh, we get any consolation from the fact that he we we don't feel he got the full measure of punishment he should have gotten for killing these boys, the fact that he has to live within the skin of of this being known as Damien Eccles, there's really sufficient punishment onto itself, despite how he may act, because at some level he has to know that uh, the the utter falsity of the uh, image that he projects. Jack Eccles continued, 
Damien was not in very good health while we lived at the old farmhouse. He was not able to go outside of the house because he got really sick. He had a real hard time with his breathing because of all the crops outside the house. Sometimes his eyes and throat swelled up and he could not swallow or see very good. The place right below his eyes turned to a darkish color, kind of like he had been hit in the eye. I think the worst thing for Damien, though, were the, his headaches. From the time that we'd moved into that house, he would get terrible headaches. He asked me to squeeze his head so that his pain would go away. I would put my arms around his head like in a headlock, and I squeezed it. I did not want to hurt him, but he always asked me to squeeze harder, so I did. I think that the pain of the headache hurt more than the squeezing of his head. He got relief for a few moments while I did this, but the headache always came back. He took some medicine to help with his breathing and to try to keep the, his swelling down, and it did help a little bit, but not near as much as we wanted it to work. Damien went through these spells where he could not sleep no matter how hard he tried to. He stayed up for three or four... <coughs> Excuse me, three or four nights in a row without sleeping at all. These periods were very hard for him, and by the end of the second day of no sleep, he was exhausted, fussy, and miserable. He cried a lot during these times, and no one seemed to be able to help him with what he was upset about. We never could figure out what he was so upset about, but there was no doubt in my mind that he was as miserable as a little boy could be. His sister Michelle went in his room to talk to him, and he sometimes fell asleep for a couple of hours or so, and then he stayed up for another few days before getting any more sleep. I was worried about Damien, but I did not know what to do. I had to work during the day, and every evening when I came home, I hoped he would be asleep, but he was normally still up. After many days of this, Damien finally slept for an entire night. Once he got a full night's rest, he went for a few weeks without trouble having sleeping. I always hoped these times would not come back, but they always did. It just about broke my heart to see how hard Damien tried to handle his problems, but he was never able to figure out what made him so sad. Damien never was a really happy boy. He got really sad sometimes, and no one, including Damien, had any idea what was wrong. He cried really hard, and I asked him what was making him so sad, and he told me he did not know. I never could figure out how someone could cry so hard and not know why they were sad, and it was real hard to watch Damien go through this. Damien used to spend a few days in a row where he cried really hard. Sometimes it seemed like he was having trouble with his breathing because he cried so much. During these periods, Damien sometimes started laughing uncontrollably, just like one of those laughs that comes from the belly. It was very strange to me that he went from crying to laughing, and I was confused about why he did this. Michelle and his mama tried to get him to stop being so sad, but the only thing that ever seemed to help him was time. After a while, he would finally get to where he could stop crying and being so sad. Damien went through this on a regular basis. There were other times when Damien had so much energy, he did not know what to do. He got really excited and kind of hyper, and he always walked at these times. 
Damien walked to some of the parks in the area, to some of his friends' houses, and across town. He told me that he sometimes got confused because he was sure where he needed to go, but when he got there, he felt like he was in the wrong place. I thought he meant that he... I thought that he meant that he changed his mind about where he wanted to go, but he told me it was not like that. Damien did not decide where he was supposed to walk to, but got a feeling about where he should be, but when he got where he was going, his feeling changed and he had to go somewhere else. He was real frustrated at these times, and I did not know how to help him. I did not really understand what he meant about not knowing where he wanted to be. I sometimes felt that I should have done a better job trying to figure out what he was talking about, and maybe then I could have made things a little better for him. I remember that Damien had some strange needs. Some things could never be out of place and had to be put in a place just so. He had the same pillow all his life, and if it ever got misplaced, he howled his head off. Damien could not sleep with any other pillow for as long as I have known him. He had a lot of fear about the closet in his room and did not want any of his toys ever put in the closet. If his toys were in the closet, he panicked and thought that they would die. Damien had these two fire hats. One was black, one was red. We had to keep the hats under the bathroom sink just so and right beside each other. If they were not in their place, it made him panic and afraid. Sometimes Damien did not have any appetite, and he did not eat for several days. It did not seem to matter what Pamela put on the table. He did not want to eat it. After a few days of not eating, Damien looked weaker, and I could tell it was wearing on him. I wished that he would eat for his health, but when he did not have an appetite, there was nothing anyone could do. Okay, that's, I believe that's the last of my quoting from uh, Andy Jack Eccles. As I think almost anyone would agree from hearing that account, it's, that's hardly the description of a, a normal happy childhood or even the childhood of, of the average angsty teenager who's having a little trouble getting adjusted to, to life. Um, it's hard not to feel a certain amount of sympathy for Eccles at this point. At least it's hard for me not to. Uh, I even identify with him on the level of I suffered from hay fever when I was a kid. The medications weren't so good back in that time, and it was pretty miserable. I mean, I I personally spent a lot of time in the house because I didn't like being outside. I was much more comfortable at home in the air conditioning with filtered air. Uh, so it, it's e- that's easy to understand, and, and from, at least for me it is, and to sympathize with. Uh, obviously, he was at the uh, mercy of these incredible mood swings. Uh, and he... Uh, In his Social Security disability application, one of the many labels he applied to himself was was manic depressive and, again, playing, you know, my psychiatric evaluation is worth what you pay for it, but it certainly sounds like he might have 
been bipolar or something very similar to that. He certainly was having, he certainly seemed to be having extreme mood swings. Um, perhaps there's something deeper, deeper than just mood swings involved, but there was, there was at least that. Uh, we'll go on back to Dr. Woods. Dr. Woods wrote, Going from Joe Hutchison to Andy Eccles was like going from the frying pan into the fire. And he's referring to the troubles that Eccles had had with his father and his erratic behavior and then Andy Eccles' problems. Um, in addition to increased isolation and poverty and being exposed to toxic pesticides, the Department of Human Services DHS records show that Andy Eccles sexually abused Mr. Eccles' younger sister repeatedly until she mustered the courage to report him to her school counselor. DHS intervened and Pamela moved her children out of the shack. Yet, that was as much as Pamela Hutchison Eccles was able to do to protect her children from the ravages of poverty, domestic violence, mental illness, and sexual abuse. For no sooner had she separated from Andy Eccles than she, Damien, and her sister moved and his, his sister moved in with Joe Hutchison, along with Joe Hutchison's own mentally impaired son from another relationship, not, not the mentally impaired son known as Damien Eccles. Uh, the return of Joe Hutchison, whom Mr. Eccles had not seen for years, coincided with Mr. Eccles' first psychiatric hospitalization. Uh, the, all these events that they're talking about with the re reporting of the sexual abuse, uh, and the separation of uh, Pamela and uh, Pam Pamela from um, Jack Eccles and her a reunion with uh, Joe Hutchison. All this occurred in rough, over roughly April, May, June, July of uh, 1992. Uh, and corresponding almost exactly with the time, almost exactly corresponding exactly with Eccles and his sub his second breakup with uh, Deanna Holcomb, his mental breakdown, his first uh, trip to a mental hospital, his arrest on charges of terroristic threatening and burglary which kind of overstated. All they did was break into an abandoned trailer. I'm not excusing that, but it was not, they weren't really taking stuff out of the place. They were just holed up in there for whatever it's worth. Um, and so there was a tremendous amount of familial tension. There was a huge crisis going on in the family on a multiple levels. Pam, Pam had no way of dealing with Damien. No way of dealing with... Michelle was pretty much... Was apparently pretty hard to control. Uh, and Andy... Andy her And the, the thing that went on with her and Andy Eccles is, is very disturbing to say the least. I think... I think uh, Michelle was maybe 14 at the time. And uh, it's, you know, very disturbing, uh, very disturbed family. And then, of course, she 
reunites with Joe Hutchison and uh, Eccles had had very, Damien Eccles had very little to do with his biological father, his real father for a number of years. So that alone, you know, the, re, the reunion, the family re reuniting and becoming, trying to make another attempt at being a family when they never really succeeded before, didn't really work out that well again, but it created its own set of tensions. <clears throat> Excuse me just a moment. I don't want to get a, have a coffin fit, so... Just get a little catch in my throat. No big deal. Except it causes, it causes an audio problem. Uh, Eccles' mental troubles, back to the book, Eccles' mental troubles did not get better with age, wrote Dr. Woods. Quote, in adolescence, Mr. Eccles became frankly suicidal. Unable to find a way out of his depression and hopelessness, he thought the only escape from his constant mental, physical, and emotional pain was to kill himself. At about the age of 16, his mental illness took a sudden turn for the worst. Mr. Eccles described feeling disorganized and out of control for, of his racing thoughts and emotions. He began to, quote, laugh hysterically and make other people think I was crazy, unquote. For Mr. Eccles, quote, manicness, unquote, meant, quote, everything sped up and became frantic. Others called it hysterical. Unquote. But Mr. Eccles described it as, quote, being driven. When he, quote, went crazy, everything sped up, unquote. He, quote, had no thought process, unquote. He could not remember, quote, all the weird things I did, unquote. But the people would tell him about them later, and he was surprised by his actions. For example, he recalled a time when, quote, some kids threw a hamburger up on the ceiling, unquote, and he reached up, grabbed it, and ate it. His mania was interspersed with periods of waiting, which is in quotes, interminably for, an, quote, an abstract thing that might come in the blink of an eye, unquote. He was mentally confused and, quote, did not know what he was waiting for, unquote. Mr. Eccles, quote, tried cutting, unquote, himself to feel, to, quote, feel different somehow, unquote, and to, quote, to see if it would let some of the pain out. I'm going I'm to stop doing the quote and unquote. It's, it's aggravating me and it may be aggravating you. And I've gotten past most of that. He felt worn out. During the one year of high school he attended in the ninth grade, he kept a journal at the instruction of his English teacher. It became more and more abstract. When I wrote about one thing, it came out as something else. If I wrote about the moon, I was actually describing the grocery store. That's a direct quote. Mr. Eccles reported that the intense shift between depression and mania literally drove me crazy. He remembered that Everything hurt from the smell of water to green grass, brown grass. He was exquisitely sensitive to the way people smelled and the smell of water. He described manic episodes when his brain rolled like a TV that is not adjusted. He believed his brain rolled when it rained or when he was near a large body of water. The change of seasons had a strong effect on him also, especially fall and winter, and made 
His brain rolled constantly. Mr. Eccles' overwhelming depression and other problems with mood during childhood and adolescence caused disturbing, disabling disturbances in his emotions, thoughts, behavior, and physical health. His sleep was irregular. He often had no energy to perform the simplest task. His thoughts were paralyzingly sluggish or racing at speeds he could not control. He felt caught in time and thought it was hopeless even to think about feeling better or gaining control over his life. He ruminated about painful memories and insignificant events. He could not concentrate and became easily confused. It was impossible to make even simple decisions. He cried and sobbed all the time without any understanding of what made him so sad. He had no ability to feel joy or pleasure. He became completely inconsolable and isolated, unable to relate to others in any meaningful way. He was inexplicably sensitive to physical sensations and reacted to the slightest changes in his environment. His body hurt when the sun went up or when the sun went down, when it rained or when it did not rain. He could not stop or escape from the pain. It became a throb that never went away. He despised himself and felt worthless. He was consumed with shame and despair. Now, that was all Dr. Woods on the self-reporting of uh, Damien Eccles. And he continues. Mr. Eccles has been evaluated on three separate occasions by three different psychologists, each of whom administered a battery of tests. A prominent feature of each evaluation was the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, the MMPI, which was administered on June 8, 1992, September 2, 1992, and February 20, 1994. Those first two instances of the test being given coincided roughly with his admittance into Charter Hospital and the two times he went into Charter Hospital in uh, Little Rock. And February 20th is after his arrest. The independent, uh, back to Dr. Woods, the independent test results were quite consistent. All revealed valid profiles and strong indications of depression, mania, severe anxiety, delusions, and psychosis. Test results for the June 8, 1992 MPI reflected elevations on scores of psychotic thinking, including hallucinations, paranoid ideation, and delusions, as well as severe anxiety and other related emotional disturbances. The suggested diagnoses were schizophrenia, disorganized type, and bipolar disease, manic. Individual responses on this test revealed that Mr. Eccles was afraid of losing his mind, had bizarre thoughts, and had very peculiar experiences. Three months later, on September 2, 1992, a second MMPI was administered. The test results very closely paralleled the findings of the earlier MMPI. Shortly before Mr. Eccles' trial began in 1994, he was administered the MMPI a third time for the purpose of identifying mitigating evidence. Like the other two, this MMPI revealed psychotic thought processes consistent with schizophrenia. Specific indications of a thought disorder included mental confusion, persecutory ideas, acute anxiety, and depressed suicidal ideation. 
Prior to and during his murder trial, Damien Eccles suffered from a severe psychiatric disorder characterized by enduring delusions, auditory and visual hallucinations, and severe mood swings ranging from suicidal depression to extreme mania. Dr. Woods continues here. He says, just a second. Mr. Mr. Eccles' accounts of his symptoms since childhood are consistent with severe traumatic stress disorders and mood disorders. He reported periods of disassociation in which he lost long spans of time. He also endorsed numerous physical problems, including frequent severe headaches, for which he was treated with prescription medications as a child, heart, heart palpitations, difficulty breathing. He was diagnosed with and treated for asthma and chronic sleeping problems. He reporting having nightmares from which he awakened in a terrified state as often as twice a night. These symptoms persisted throughout his childhood and adolescence and grew to include periods of psychosis. Although he has received, this is from contemporaneous with his report, uh, the reporting, uh, which is after Eccles had been in prison for six or seven years. Although he has received no psychiatric treatment on death row, Mr. Eccles stated his mental illness has improved significantly since his incarceration. Prior to and during his trial, Mr. Eccles heard voices that were not really voices, and he was not sure if it was a voice inside his head or someone else's, somebody else's voice. He thought it was nearly impossible to tell if it was his voice or something, somebody else. He experienced visual hallucinations that were personifications of others. Quote, they were like smoke, changing shape, but present and constant. Unquote. The personifications had specific names and activities. One was Morpheus Sandman, who was a hybrid of a human being and a god. Another example was Washington crossing the Delaware. Mr. Eccles saw Washington cross the Delaware with Hermes on the boat. Hermes was able to cross with Washington because, quote, Hermes was moving backwards through time, unquote. Mr. Eccles came to believe that he was the same as these personifications, quote, made from the same material and from the same place, unquote. Mr. Eccles stated at some, that at some point in his adolescence, he came to believe that he was something that was almost a supreme being that came from a place other people didn't come from. This transformation caused him to change physically. The pertinent changes appearing in his appendages, hands, feet, and hair. He acquired, quote, an entirely different bone structure that was not human, unquote. He developed stronger senses, his eyesight was better, and his ability to smell and taste changed. Excuse me. He had a different stance, moved his eyes, and held his head differently. He grew his nails so that they would be a perfect one and a half inches long. When he looked at his hands, he could see his bones. His weight dropped to 116 pounds, consistent with neurovegetative signs seen in mood disorders. 
This period of physical change began the year before his arrest and lasted for about two years after he was on death row. End of, end of Dr. Wood's statement here. And I sum up in my, the book, uh, Eccles' lifelong struggle with mental illness took several violent turns in the year leading up to his arrest. And we'll look at that uh, in either those incidents in either uh, episode 11 or 12 or 13 or whenever I get around to it, depending on whether I go back and we'll take a look again at the other statements uh, from other people and continue to build the case that, you know, for those who are in denial about Damien Eccles and his mental health problems, there are many, there are many people who are in that state of denial. I just want to offer the evidence that would suggest that this was an extremely disturbed, violent, violence-prone individual at the time that he committed these murders. He was not a child. He was 18 years old. Uh, he was drawing Social Security dis disability benefits through his own actions, through his own application. Uh, got them very quickly. There was no disputation going on. I mean, he filed. He he he'd only turned 18 in um, December of 1992, and by May 1993, he had been receiving those disability. Not, not really large checks, four or five hundred dollars a month, something like that. But he was receiving benefits uh, uh, every month from the Social Security for disability because basically they were satisfied pretty quickly. Yeah, indeed, this is a, somebody who is so profoundly mentally ill, he's incapable of supporting himself. Uh, and we'll add that you know, he was facing the prospect of not only being asked to support himself, but being asked to support uh, uh, a, a, a child. Uh, Dominique here was pregnant. She was 16. Um, with no, there's no clear sign that she would be able to contribute much to the support, support of the child. Uh, Eccles' parents were arguing at this time. In fact, uh, there's a dispute, and we'll get into it at some point, whether uh, among the precipitating events uh, leading up to the killing was whether uh, the night before Joe Hutchinson had been asked to leave the family home or had chosen to leave the family home uh, that Tuesday, greatly upsetting Damien. It's not clear that, that 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 happened on that Tuesday. It's pretty clear it happened at some point within that, that week or so, which suggested an ongoing pattern of family a family conflict, though, you know, that is admittedly speculation, but it does suggest that maybe there were some tent underlying tensions that were already there, and this wasn't just some sort of uh, tension that popped up out of the blue and Joe Hutchison took himself off to his mother's apartment. Um on that basis, but the timing of that is, it's unclear due to the very confused narrative offered by uh, Pamela Beckles, Hutchison, uh, who's not a really a terribly good, <laughs> she's one of his primary alibi witnesses and she's absolutely, 
she's not as bad as her son as far as her p- performance on the stand, but she's certainly not very good. She's not the least bit credible and honestly just gave the impression she was up there trying to support her son by any any means necessary, which I have I'm not suggesting people should perjure themselves for family members, but I do at least understand why somebody would tell a story, tell a story to police, prosecutors, or, or even under sworn testimony that perhaps they'd talked themselves into that wasn't true to defend a family member. I do understand that, and it happens a lot, uh, not just in this case. And f- Friends will do the same thing, as it's proved in the Jesse Miskelly uh, failed alibis. We'll get into all that in later episodes. Um, that's enough for this time. Um, managed to keep the coughing spells under some kind of control, but I apologize for the few that, that popped up. Uh, I've got to be. I've got to go. I may have to go back to my regimen of drinking low-acid coffee, which I'm, I'm off of that for a couple of days, and that triggers some of that. So for no other, hey, here's your here's your nutrition tip for me. You know, if you're having uh, a sensitive throat, sometimes it could be coffee or colas. Just a little tip. Anyway, have a good week. Uh, my intention is to... Uh, produce one of these episodes every week till we get through with uh, covering the case. Uh, I'm not in a hurry to do so. Uh, I'm prepared to take my time to do so. And and there's going to be some other things that pop up from time to time. Um, There's a thing on HBO coming up, uh, which Amy Berg, who did the really absolutely inexcusably horrible, but well-made, but a lie from beginning to end west of Memphis. You know, under the generous umbrella of Peter Jackson. Um, She's doing a, a series called The, the Case Against Anon Sayed, uh, which she looks at that particular murder case on HBO. I think it's four parts, and I'm not, I don't know if she, they're doing it week by week, but I got the impression it was going to be a, a slow reveal rather than f- something you could stream all at once. And uh, I'm going to be, in, I may delve into that briefly. I'm by no means. I probably know less about that case than many people listening to this if you're true crime followers. I'm not, you know, I'm not obsessed with true crime. <laughs> I got interested in this case. And there's, there's some aspects of, the, of, there's some cases and some, uh, you know, I was fascinated with the, the Ted Bundy case for a long time because uh, I think he's, he's just an absolutely f- weird and fascinating character. And with the Manson case, just partially from just when it happened and uh, you know I was a teenager at the time and you know it had a huge effect on society and I've always been interested in that those two two particular cases uh, and s- maybe a few others and I've read a bit in true crime but I'm not some sort of 
true crime groupie. I'm not running that down. I think it's a valid, I, I think it's an interesting genre and it's something I <clears throat> drop into from time to time, but I was not really aware of a non Syed at all until. <coughs> I'll have to stop here in a moment. But I was not aware of a non Syed at all until a uh, discussion came up. Uh, concerning Bob Ruff's uh, coverage of that case, and which he apparently did just as bad a job or maybe worse than he did in, uh, in, in with, as he did with the West Memphis Three. Uh, but I'm gonna be, I may take a, a detour for a couple of weeks, do some studying up on Anand Syed, and at least at least dip into that briefly and, and uh, as those those cases are being aired, part of, I mean the case against. It's not really the case against. It sounds like it's going to be the case for. But, you know. This this broadcast, I I could you know if I'm getting into something else and looking at another case, it might be the case against the guilt of someone. So I have that option, and maybe that's how she's thinking that this this is the case against the guilt of a non Sayed. Um, but we shall see. I don't want to judge too much too early. I've just seen what some of the preliminary um, coverage has had. Uh, I will say that, you know, speaking of Ted Bundy, Bundy has was uh, the focus of a documentary by uh, Joe Berlinger, who also is doing a fictionalized account of... Uh, the book, The Phantom Prince, which I think is explicitly the inspiration for for the uh, the movie uh, about Ted Bundy's relationship with his longtime fiance, and uh, basically, if Bundy's if, if not Bundy, if Berlinger's in, involved in it. You can basically uh, count on it being some sort of distorted version of what reality actually was. He certainly has done that with the West Memphis Three. Uh, I've seen, you know, I've watched most, I haven't seen everything he's done, but I've seen quite a bit of it. Uh, I was thinking at some point of doing some extended commentary on Bo Joe Berlinger did I say Joe Berlinger and not Bo Gerlinger? Anyway, uh, I just, uh, you know, I, I, I don't find, I, I don't find what he does interesting enough to really go into it, that, but I found myself being sort of disgusted by the level of dishonesty that he perpetuates on an ongoing basis. He, um, that said, you know, this, this movie is his second foray into something that's fiction. His first was uh, uh, the follow-up to the Blair Witch Project, which had all, which had all sorts of weird take, takes on the West Memphis Three case without explicitly, uh, without explicitly being inspired by it, but much of it was clearly inspired by that case. And speaking of which, the uh, continuing episodes, and we're down to 
the, the last two or so. I think one's supposed to air tonight. Uh, this is the 17th, and one's supposed to air tonight. That would be the, uh, uh, that sort of are clearly inspired in parts by the West Memphis Three, but certainly has gone off on some very strange tangents. Though they do manage to pull in uh, guilt of a father rather than, you know, somebody who was actually convicted of the crime. Um, honestly, uh, despite the some superficial resemblances, so far it really doesn't, it really isn't, and I'm obviously inspired by the West Memphis Three, but, it, you know, as far as being uh, some version of the story, it, it's it's way far off. Uh, which I'm I'm not unhappy about. Uh, you know, I would I would rather it, it they go off into some ta some wild tangent, which is apparently where they've already gone to, uh, uh, rather than uh, try to do you know once again try to do a, a fictionalized version of West of Memphis or whatever the intention was there. But anyway, that's I've talked enough, I've talked too long, and. Uh, I wish you all well, and I will talk to you again soon.